0: Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. A new kind. A new kind. Frederick Beekner, in his very candid book, Telling Secrets, a memoir, talks about his mother. He writes, "...being beautiful was her business." her art, her delight. It took her a long way and earned her many dividends. But when, as she saw it, she lost her beauty, and you stand a better chance of finding your cane behind the radiator than you do finding your blonde hair and blue eyes, she was like a millionaire who runs out of money. She took her name out of the phone book. She got an unlisted number. She became so deaf that it almost became impossible to speak to her except about things simple enough to shout her health, the weather, when you might visit again. It was, is, it was as if the deafness was a technique mastered for not hearing anything that might threaten her peace. She developed the habit of closing her eyes when she spoke to you as if you were a dream and, and she was dreaming. It was as if she chose not to see in your face what you might be thinking behind the simple words you were shouting or as if ostrich-like closing her eyes was a way of keeping you from seeing her. With her looks gone, she felt she had nothing left to offer the world. And what she did was to simply check out of the world that old last rose of summer. My mother holed herself up in her apartment on 79th Street, and then just one room of the apartment, and then just one chair in the apartment, and then just the bed, where one morning, a few summers ago, in her sleep, she died at last. The motto of her life was, you have to suffer in order to be beautiful, What she meant, of course, is all the pains she took in front of the mirror, the plucking, the primping, the powdering, the brushing, the painting, that kind of suffering. But it seems clear there was another kind too. To be born as blonde and blue-eyed and as beautiful as she was can be as much a handicap in its own way as to be born with a cleft palate. Because if you're beautiful enough, you don't have to really be anything much else to make people love you and want to be near you. You don't have to be particularly kind or unselfish or generous or compassionate because people will flock around you anyway, simply for the sake of your beauty. A mother could be all those things when she took a notion to, but she never made a habit of it. She never developed the giving, loving side of what she might have been as a human being. And needless to say, that's where the real suffering came. Two failed marriages after the death of my father, the fragment among all of her friends she had over the course of her life. She never, as far as I know, had one whom she would in any sense have sacrificed herself for, and by doing so perhaps have begun to find her best and truest self. William Butler Yeats, in the poem A Prayer for My Daughter, writes, Hearts are not had as a gift, but hearts are earned by those who are not entirely beautiful. Hearts are not had as a gift, but hearts are earned by those who are not entirely beautiful. My almost entirely beautiful mother was by no means heartless, but I think hers was a heart that, who knows why, was rarely, if ever, touched at its deepest place. Even as Beekner's mother concentrated on her physical beauty her golden hair, her blue eyes, at the expense of a beautiful heart, we too must be careful as a people of God not to concentrate on outward righteousness that in some ways excuses us from having a heart shaped by our relationship with the Christ. As we... Heard in our reading this morning in Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the Matthian gospel, right there at the onset, there's a story about a man by the name of Joseph. In chapter 1, verse 19 tells us clearly Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph was a righteous man. That means Joseph knows right from wrong, Joseph is a keeper of the commandments. As Thomas Long says, you give Joseph an ethical dilemma and he knows the way to go. And he does. He does what is right. In this case, oh oh my, he even knows the way to go when his fiance, his fiance turns up pregnant and he knows he's not involved. He's not a cruel man. He does it compassionately, but he's going to do what's right. He's going to play by the book and righteous men put such women away. And then that great and glorious intrusion of the angel. The angel says something like this, "Joseph, there's more holiness in the matter than you could ever imagine. There's more divinity in this pregnancy than you have ever dreamed. You will not put her away. You will take her as your wife." And you shall name that baby Jesus, for he shall save God's people from their sins. Now Joseph has a choice. Is he going to be righteous as he learned to be? Or is he going to listen to the angel and be righteous? He took her as his wife, and he named that baby Jesus as the angel commanded Right there, at the outpost of Matthew, Matthew gives you the very paradigm for what he wants us, his readers, to discover about righteousness. Joseph is a righteous man, and now at the beginning, he's a righteous man in an entirely new way. Matthew 5:17. Jesus says, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill." For truly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, here it goes, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness is different than the kind of righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, the Pharisees, much like Beekner's mother, who was all worried about her outer beauty, her blonde hair and her blue eyes. The Pharisees were worried about their, preoccupied with their outer righteousness. Christ says, I'm not contradicting the law, but neither is he preserving it unchanged. He will fulfill it, and he will bring the law to its intended goal. That's where they'd missed it, the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus mentions the Pharisees and scribes precisely because they were the paradigm of righteous perfection. They were the model of what it meant to be righteous in Judaism. And he does not challenge their scrupulous attention to the law, but as the subsequent verses will show, he simply declares that now with the coming of the Messiah and the age of the Christ, now that he is here, more will actually be required in fellowship with God. People must now follow Jesus in discipleship, something that the scribes and Pharisees have refused to do. Christian discipleship require, requires a new, a greater righteousness. And lest we be left warning, for example, what do you mean, Jesus? He gives us six examples, not one or two or three, but we'll look at six examples of what righteousness and the kingdom of God actually looks like. Jesus does nothing less than redefine spiritual maturity. Now, the Pharisees were a group of laypersons. They weren't preachers per se or priests. They were lay people from all walks of life, and they had devoted themselves to being separate from those who sin. In fact, the word in Hebrew, Pharisee, means to separate. It's based on the verb to, to be separate, to separate. And they followed scrupulously every jot and tittle of the law. They had separated themselves from those who sin. But now, with the coming of the Messiah, things had to be different. The Old Testament laws were not enough for the Pharisees. They took the Old Testament law, and unless they get too close to sinning, they started an oral law, and then an oral law on top of that, and they passed it down from generation to generation. And in the middle of the third century, they codified the oral law, which was an interpretation of the Torah, Moses' law. They called that the Mishnah. And then they started interpreting the Mishnah, and they called that the Talmud, an interpretation of the interpretation of the law. You see where it's going. It was a legalistic mind that was constantly redefining and extending the laws of God. But in its strict adherence to the law, that's not what brings us in right relationship as Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks about relationships here, not rituals, but relationships. The whole purpose of the law to begin with was to teach us how to be in right relationship with God and right relationship with each other. The purpose of the law was to have good relationships with God and good relationships with our brother. Amos 5, the prophet pounces and like a lion roars, speaking for God. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand in your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with your noise and your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Even the minor prophet Amos sees that the kind of righteousness that Judaism had developed would never do for God. The first application, example number one, not murder, but anger. Not murder, but anger. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said, by the ancients you should not commit murder. And whoever commits murder is liable to the court." But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there at the altar and go your way. First to be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Not just murder, but anger too. You have heard the ancients say, Jesus says, and then he gives us the sixth commandment of the Decalogue, the six of the Ten Commandments. Be careful, Jesus is saying. Don't throw yourself a party simply because you haven't murdered anyone. Sometimes upon someone's death, I'll meet with the family and they'll say, oh, he was a very good man. Well, what does that mean? I'm thinking, well, he's a good man. Well, he didn't drink and he didn't smoke and he didn't gamble and he was faithful to his wife. Are they defining a good man by what he doesn't do? Is he a good man simply because he hasn't done those things? I'm glad for his health that he's not smoking or excessively drinking, and I'm glad he's kept his marriage covenant, and I'm glad he's a better financial planner than to gamble, but the Sermon of the Mount would ask, does that in itself make him a good man? You have heard it said, but now that I, the Messiah, am here, I say to you, he doesn't contradict the law, but he brings it into the sharpest of focus. He looks beyond the act to the attitude that elicits the act. It's not just the murder, it's the hate within. No orge, he says in the Greek. No brooding wrath against those in your community. And don't call your brother rachai. I want to spit on you. You can hear the spit, Racha right there, can't you? Don't be hateful to your brother. Don't call your brother a moron, a fool, it says. It's not just sins, not just sins of the hand, but also sins of the heart. In the work Stride Forward, Martin Luther King Jr. says, don't only avoid violence of deed, but also violence of spirit. Reflecting on the teaching of Jesus in this section He says, if you're going to church and you discover right there in the middle of worship that you have a problem with your brother, a broken relationship, leave your offering and run and get the relationship right, and then come back and obey the law of the offering. Relationships, Jesus says, are uniquely more important than ritual. Some of you here this morning, perhaps some of you watching by television or or live streaming, you're, you're here, but you're worshiping with an angry heart. A heart that's angry against a brother or a sister or a coworker or someone in this community, and, and be careful, Jesus says, don't sit back and pride yourself on the fact you've not broken the law with the hand. I'm concerned about the heart and relationships. What about your relationship to your brother, your sister in Christ? Does someone have cause to be angry with you? The second example is this. He says, you shall not commit adultery. Now he moves to the seventh commandment of the Decalogue. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery, of course, refers to sexual relations by a married person with a partner other than his or her spouse. Don't pride yourself in your faithfulness to your wife if, in fact, you're looking upon other women with the intention in your heart of committing adultery, he says. It's a language not of one who glances, but the one who persists and is overcome my longing in his heart. Jesus says, takes drastic decisions there. He says, plug out your eye, cut off your hand. Of course, he doesn't literally want us to maim ourselves, but what he's telling us is we need to take all seriously the desires of our hearts. Application number three. He says, divorce. Look at verses 31 and 32. And you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He wants them to know that the marriage relationship is a one-flesh relationship that is sacred. The divorce is an evil. Why, in some marriage ceremonies today, instead of saying, until death do we part, the bride and the groom utter something along these lines, as long as we both shall love each other. As long as we both shall love each other. Not so, Jesus says. With the sole exception of the unfaithfulness of one partner, which has already broken the covenant, the covenant is not to be broken. And I want to say very quickly that, church must do, th- do two things in regard to divorce. We must be busy proclaiming the seriousness of marriage and the expectation of a, a lifetime commitment and keeping one's vow. But also we must be redemptive and forgiving to those who've suffered the pain of divorce. There's a, a fourth one here. A new kind of righteousness depends on our honesty. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard it said... You shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vow to the Lord. But I say to you, take no oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God. And then he tells us in the end, verse 37, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond the handshake and the yes and the no means that there's some lack of trust between the two partners. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your word and the spirit of your word. Jesus wants his disciples to practice truth in their relationships to each other and truth in their relationship with the world. Here's a, a fifth example. It's called the lex talionis. Look at verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do not resist whom is evil. Whoever slapped you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you, uh, take your shirt, give him your coat also. Whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. It is the idea of lex talionis it is the disciple imitating God who returns good for evil. And here's where he gets tough in the Sermon on the Mount. The example of God in returning good for evil. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the oldest law code known to humanity. It's called lex talionis. It is as old as the 8th century, 18th century B.C. King Hammurabi came up with the code. It's seen in... Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It was to limit retaliation. If a man takes out your eye, you can only take out his eye. If he takes out your tooth, you can only have retribution by taking out his tooth. You can't take more than he took from you. It was to limit revenge. Jesus takes a thing that is intended to to limit revenge and retaliation and turns it into non-retaliation. If someone slaps your right cheek with a backhanded slap, which was double the penalty in the law, it's so humiliating, then turn your head and let them come across and get your left cheek too. If someone sues you for your shirt, then take off your coat and give them your coat. They're all familiar with going one mile or two miles. just the Romans who could conscript those in the crowd to carry their armor a mile, carry it two. If the soldier says you got to carry it one, carry it two. You have a biblical example of this in Simon the Cyrene who is ordered to what? Carry the cross of Jesus. Carry it, double what the Roman soldier asked you to do. Here's the final application, verses 43 through 48. The final application. Look at verse 43. You have heard it said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, there's no Old Testament phrase that tells you to hate your enemy. But it was the tradition. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and since reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what more do you do than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore be perfect, even as my heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. If you want to know how much you've become like Christ, the true measure is how you treat your enemies. If you want to know how much your heart has molded to the heart of the Christ, it's how you treat not your friends. Even the Gentiles are good to their friends. Even the tax gatherers greet those who greet them. Quid quo pro. But how do you treat your enemies? Well, how did Jesus treat his enemies? Father, forgive them, please. They don't know what they're doing. There was an evangelical church like ours. They made a trip to Ship Shawana, Indiana. They were going to bring the loss of Ship Shawana to Christ. Their intentions were good. It was in front of Yoder's dry goods store that one of these earnest souls confronted a Mennonite farmer with a challenge, brother, Are you saved? The farmer was stunned by the question. No one ever asked him that question. And all of his years of attending the Peach Bloom Mennonite congregation had not prepared him for such a question, particularly in front of Yoder's dry goods store. He didn't want to offend the man who asked him the question. The man seemed like he was earnest. The man seemed to be posing the question with goodwill, so he thought long and hard, I'm going to answer this question, am I saved? So he asked the questioner, the evangelist, for a sheet of paper and a pencil. And he wrote down 10 names on the sheet of the paper. He said to the evangelist, here's 10 names. Most of them are my friends. Some of them are my acquaintances. And even a few of them are my enemies. You go ask them if I'm a saved man. I wouldn't presume to answer that myself. What are they saying about us? What are our friends saying about us? What would our families say about us? And maybe more importantly to the Sermon on the Mount, what would our enemies say? say about us? Is ours a righteousness? An old righteousness of the Pharisees. Like the old Joseph who was willing to put Mary away. Now Joseph was a righteous man. Are we still... In the pre kingdom stage of righteousness? When Jesus arrives preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he redefines righteousness around the means of relationships. Have you heard the divine call of the divine angel to name him Jesus? For he will save you his people from their sins sins of the hand and sins of the heart let us pray Oh, God, sometimes just when we think we have arrived in our ritual and really religiosity, we're reminded that the law is about relationships. First of all, our relationship to God and then our relationship to each other. Oh, God, I pray if there's someone here this morning struggling with relationships either their relationship with you oh God, or God their relationship with their family or relationship with an enemy that you will fill us with the kingdom hearts of our Jesus that we will know to let go and to let God And as we receive his grace, we are to be givers of his grace. Amen.